Well, good morning, Vine family. Um, so my name is Michael, and I'm the church plant resident here at the Vine, and uh, glad to be continuing in our series in First Peter. And uh, I've been thinking about how the last couple of weeks have been uh, very emotional. So last Sunday, some of you probably came in tired because you'd stay up late watching the Cubs win. Uh, and that was a good thing, joyful. I think this week a lot of us are coming tired physically, emotionally, because we stay up late watching the election. That was very divisive. Um, and so just as, as I've been burdened by that, as Scott and Zach and I have talked and prayed, you know, there's a lot that could be said, but just wanted to share briefly kind of maybe three, three things that came to mind about how we can respond as a Vine family to these events. And the three words are unity, hope, and witness. I recognize that uh, in a room this large, there are different responses to the election. Uh, some of you maybe are encouraged for various reasons. Some of you are discouraged, saddened, grieved, and possibly even fearful at the results. We need to recognize that there are these different responses within this body and learn to actually listen to, empathize with, and love one another, even in our differences. To not assume the worst of each other, because this election has shown how deeply divided our nation is, and also, sadly, often how our churches are still divided. So can we ask God to make this place a countercultural place? A place that isn't divisive over politics, where we can disagree and yet respect each other, love one another, seek the good of one another in our community and our nation. We might not all agree, but can we choose to grieve with one another and choose to be a place of unity and love, even in the midst of differences? But we're only going to be able to have that kind of unity if we help each other focus on our common gospel hope. And I'm so grateful that God in his sovereignty knew where we'd be at. Because remember last week we heard from 1 Peter 1.13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on what? The grace of God that will be revealed in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we needed this week leading up to the election? To prepare our minds, to set our hope on grace to come to us and hope. Because elections, I think, are opportunities to ask, where is our hope? For some, their hope has been in Trump. But remember, if that is you, that he is only a man and a flawed man, he will disappoint you. Don't set your hope on him. But for those of you who did not vote for Trump and are fearful because your hope was on the other side, remember that Trump is just a man. He will not be president forever. God is still king of kings. God was not sleeping on the job on Tuesday and missed what happened. No, God is still the author of history, and we know the story that he's writing is good and that the ending is very good. It's an ending where he makes all things new, where God will end racism and the mistreatment of women, where he'll end poverty and immigrants will be welcomed home. It's the end of abortion and the culture of death. It's when Jesus returns and makes everything perfect and we see him face to face. That's the hope we have. That's the hope that can outlast anything that's going on. So can we ask God to give us as a vine family that countercultural hope that we would be a witness to the watching world of where our hope lies and it lies in a person, Jesus Christ, the suffering and resurrected King. Fine family, can we ask God to help us hold on to gospel hope so we can be a loving community that is a witness to the world? Can we make that our prayer? 
Can we pray that our hope and unity would be evident as we engage with neighbors and coworkers? Can we make it our prayer that they would see in us as followers of Jesus not anger, not hate, not despair, but hope in God and love for others, even love for others that are different from us, and especially for those on the margins? Can we make it our prayer that we would actually keep doing what we're supposed to be doing all the time, declare and demonstrate the good news of Jesus to neighbors and nations for his glory? Can we pray that we would be that kind of family? But if we're going to be that kind of family, then we need to actually know who we are in Jesus. We need to actually be grounded in the hope of the gospel. And so that's why I'm so grateful God has us in 1 Peter, because that's what 1 Peter is doing. He's grounding believers 2,000 years ago and now us today in who we are in Christ. He wants to remind us who God is and what he's done to make us his so we can live a different way. So that's where I just want us to soak in this morning. Just soak in the good news of Jesus that despite all the other news that's out there right now, that for this time as a family, we would soak in good news and it would shape us for our good and for God's glory. So let me pray and I'm going to read from 1 Peter. Father, we come this morning from a lot of different places but we can all recognize that there are many things in this election cycle that have grieved you and should grieve us. And so we come desperate and hungry for you to speak life to us and peace and good news and to set our eyes back on hope that is greater than anything else going on, that will outlast and is bigger and better. So would you give us ears to listen this morning, to hear from you, to hear of your great love for us. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let me read from 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to continue at verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This morning, I really want us to walk away believing and really knowing in the depths of our being that because God is a loving and just Father, that He has ransomed us in Jesus at cost so we can live a life that pleases Him. Because of who God is and what He's done for us, that we would live a life for Him. We're actually going to start kind of at that last point What does the life look like for him? And then see how God's identity and God's action motivates those things. It's always good to pay attention to a structure of a passage, right? The Bible's literature. God's writing to us in ways we're meant to understand. And so if you look at verse 17, you see there's an if-then statement there. If you call on him as father, then there's a certain way of living, right? Motivation, behavior. But then verses 18 to 21 is all about, well, you act that way because you know something. 
And Peter spends all that time spelling out what we know that God has done for us. And this is really the pattern across all of Scripture. That motivation for obedience is driven by who God is and what he's done to make us his. That's always the way the Bible motivates us towards obedience. So what, is, so, so what are we called to do? Well, verse 17 says that we are called to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. There's a certain way of living. There's a certain conduct. There's a certain pattern of behavior that's expected of us or should flow out of us if we are believers in Jesus. That's what Peter's saying. And he's going to contrast that in verse 18 with the fact that we've been ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers. He says, look, there's there's another way of living that is default for every human being. It's handed down from father to son, from father to daughter, mother to daughter. It's handed down family after family after family. It's the futile way of living. It's the life that Adam and Eve chose. No thanks, God. We'll live our way. We'll look out for number one because that's going to be good for me. And the history of the world is that when we look out for number one, it leads to destruction. And we've seen that in this election cycle. Let's look out for my interest above everybody else's. And what does it lead to? Division, divisiveness, anger, despair. It's a futile way of living. It's not worth it. So Peter's inviting us to a different way of living. Conduct yourselves, he says, how? Throughout the time of your exile. He's saying, look, you're not part of that family way of living anymore. You're in exile. You're not a citizen of this way of living anymore. You're a citizen of a different kingdom. And so you live a different kind of way. You live like in exile because your allegiance is to a different kingdom. You're part of a new family. There's a new family way of living that's been handed down to you. You're not like everyone else anymore. So we might ask Peter, well, Peter, what does that look like to live, to conduct ourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile? Well, Peter says, look, I've got the whole rest of the book to tell you. But here's some snapshots. Maybe living differently looks like two, chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Maybe it looks like 2, 11, and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Maybe it looks like 2.17. Honor everyone. Yes, everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Maybe it looks like 3.9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Maybe it looks like 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Isn't that a beautiful way of living? If that was lived out perfectly in our family, wouldn't that be so much more compelling than what's going on outside the family? Yeah. That's what Peter's inviting us into, this different way of living. And if you do that, you're going to stand out. The early Christians were known for standing out. So in a very early church, like first two centuries, there was a letter from Mathetes to Diognetus where he described Christians being viewed this way. 
For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities according as the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do others, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. See that? They're living here in this world. They're not different how they look in terms of clothing or the superficial things. But at a deeper level, there's a different pattern of living. Made them stand out. Made them ask who are you living for that you're living this way? Because if you're going to live a different way, it's because your allegiance is to a different king. And that's why Peter says in verse 17 that we conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. One fear of who? The one you call on as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Like You're never going to conduct yourself to please him unless you're in fear. Well, what does it mean to conduct ourselves in fear? Because I think that could be really confusing. Like, maybe the first thing you're thinking of is afraid. And when you hear about the fact that the Father judges, you're like, yep, that's exactly what I thought God was like. He is a judge. And he expects perfect behavior, and he's just waiting to get me. You know, like, if I step out of line a little too much, bam, like lightning coming down striking me. Or maybe it's he's just building up until he's going to get me eventually, or on the day of judgment. And so you know what you got to do? You better obey all the laws, memorize them all, keep them all perfectly, and if you're falling a little bit short, make sure you point out where other people fall short to cover up because you've got to be perfect. And if that's who your view of God is, you better be afraid because the only response is either recognizing you can't keep all his laws and then you have despair or you become self-righteous. I got this. I got it all. I don't know why anyone else can't get their life together, but I'm living perfectly. And then you become an arrogant jerk that pushes other people away. But what if there's a different way of living in fear that Peter's talking about? What if he's thinking about what we talked about all summer in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord? Which is really, I think, helpfully understood when we think about the fear of man, right? Fear of man is caring so much about what people think that you'll do whatever to please them because you care about them. The fear of the Lord is what? Doing whatever it takes to please God because you care about him. That could be you care about him because you're afraid of him, or it could be you care about him because you love him. Do you see the difference? One is trying to keep all the rules because you're afraid. One is trying to keep all the rules out of love for someone. It's a big difference. And it basically comes down to this. How do you see God? How do you see God? Is he a judge, primarily, out to get you? 
Or is he a father that loves, that loves you? What is your view of God? And that's why Peter actually really starts verse 17 with the right view of God. Because you have to have that in place if you're going to live for him. So he says in verse 17, right? If you call on him as judge? No, if you call on him as father. He starts with fatherhood. And this is just such a major identity of God in the Bible. He is a father. When Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't say, pray this, our great Lord. He didn't say, pray this, our great and just judge. He said, pray this, our father. Our father. You get to call him father if you're in Jesus. If you've trusted Jesus, you're part of the family. He's father. So for believers, Jesus is not against you. God is not against you. He's not looking to get you. He's a father that loves you. He's for you. He desires your good. And even if he is going to discipline you, even if he is going to say, I'm not going to let you get away with sin, it's out of love. That's his heartbeat towards us. Now, just because God's our father and loves us doesn't mean he doesn't judge, right? We read in verse 17, if you call him his father, he's still someone who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God is not a pushover grandpa that just spoils the kids and lets them do whatever they want, right? Which ruins kids, right? God is a father who loves and even will discipline out of love. He cares about us enough to care that we actually live a life that's good for us, the life of obedience. And he'll correct us if we're getting off course. He will judge. He will discipline. He will correct In fact, Peter says in chapter 4, verse 17, that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God's not going to show favorites. He has to judge fairly whether we're we're his children or not. So even judgment will begin at the household of God, he says. Imagine with me that someone robbed you, right? The police caught them. You go to court. You have video evidence. Everything's there to show that they are clearly guilty. But you find out that the judge is the dad of the thief. The judge hears all the case and says, yep, you're right, he's guilty, but he's my son, I love him, so uh, case closed, he's off the hook. Is that, is that a good judge? No. Is that even a good father? No. Because now he's just encouraged his son, yeah, just go ahead, keep sinning, I don't care. Just keep robbing. It's going to destroy people, it's going to destroy you, but I just love you. That's not really love, Right? That's not love at all. No, the fact that our father is also a judge means because he's our father, he cares more about our behavior rather than less. He cares in love for us. And we should see that we should be the same way. That if we know that the judge of all things, we get to call father, we've got a double motivation now. Not just fear of judgment, but love for him motivates us towards obedience. We want to please dad. Isn't that right? But if you only see God as judge, then of course there's fear and despair. You don't have any hope before his bar of justice because none of us is perfect. So how do you see God? That's what comes back to you. How do you see God? Is he just a pushover grandpa that you can get away with anything? It doesn't matter. Or is God just a harsh judge out to get you? 
Or is God a father that loves you and loves you enough to correct and grow you? How do you see God? Because it will shape how you live. But how do we see God when we can't actually see him? Well, we see him in Jesus, right? Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which is why Peter is going to say, we don't just need to know who God is. We need to see what he's done in Jesus. And that's verses 18 to 21. But we've got this problem, right? I mean, if you've been thinking about this, well, if God's a Father that loves us, and yet he has to judge impartially, right? And we fall short of his standard. How can God love us and yet judge us? How can he be just and punish sin, punish rebellion, punish disobedience, and yet show love at the same time? Well, the answer is in verse 18. It's ransom. What does he say? You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Ransom. Right? It's the price to redeem something, right? So if somebody's in bondage or in slavery, if someone has bounty on their head, you can pay something to redeem them from that. You can pay something to get them out of slavery. In fact, in the Roman days of, of Peter, that happened. If you were a slave, you could make some extra money on the side, and then you could save that up and buy your freedom. You could ransom yourself with silver or gold. But Peter says, I know you've got that idea in your brain, my, my readers, but that's not actually the picture I want you to have in your brain. Because silver and gold will never be enough to pay for your ransom. There's never enough money that you can save up to ransom yourself. You can't buy your way into salvation. You can't earn your way out of judgment. No, I've got a different image for you. Let's continue looking at verse 19. He says, You were ransomed not by these perishable things, but with the precious blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, I want you to have a different story in your brain. I want you to be thinking of God's people over a thousand years ago as slaves in Egypt. Enslaved, and God wants to ransom. He wants to redeem them out of that slavery. And yet God's also a just judge. And so he's going to come in judgment, even in the midst of salvation. So God says, look, here's here's what we'll do. Every family take a lamb, a perfect lamb, without blemish or spot to represent innocence. Kill the lamb, take the blood, put it over the doorposts of your house. And when I come by in my judgment, I will pass over you. I'll let you go unpunished because the lamb took your place as a substitute. You need a substitute. If you won't die for your disobedience and sin, then somebody or something has to. Somebody's got to take the blame. I saw this illustrated in a film I really like called National Treasure, where Nicolas Cage plays Ben Gates, a, a treasure hunter who's trying to protect this great treasure from these, these criminals. And as part of the adventure, he has to uh, steal the Declaration of Independence to keep it from the bad guys. Now, the thing is, the FBI doesn't take kindly to people stealing the Declaration of Independence. So even though he's the good guy, he's being chased by the bad guys and the FBI. And towards the end of the film, he he finds the treasure, and he sits down to talk with the FBI agent. And the FBI agent says, okay, Ben, you got two options. Door number one, you go to prison for a very long time. Door number two, 
You tell us about the treasure so we can safeguard it, and you still go to prison for a very long time, but you feel better about yourself for helping us. And Ben says, well, is there a door that doesn't lead to prison? Because I really, really don't want to go to prison. And then the agent says, Ben, somebody's got to go to prison. Now, thankfully, in the film, he finds a substitute, the criminals, the bad guys. He says, "Uh, I think I know somebody that could go to prison for me. Now, they're not perfect, but in a small, similar way, God is saying to us, look, somebody has to go to prison. Somebody has to pay the cost of your disobedience and rebellion. And the cost of that is death. So if you don't want to pay the price, you better find a substitute. And they better be perfect. Because only a perfect substitute will count. But then God did something amazing. He says, tell you what, I'll provide the substitute. I'll be your substitute. God the Son, Jesus says, I'll volunteer. I'll go to prison. I'll take the death sentence so you can be ransomed. See that in verse 19? We're ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Just like those lambs that were without blemish or spot, he was perfect. And because he's God, he is incredibly valuable. So his sacrifice can actually pay the price needed to redeem us. And in so doing, God shows us his justice and his love. Maybe you're thinking, man, I've heard this like a hundred times. Heard about how Jesus comes and dies on the cross for us. I get it. But I know I've been tempted to think that too, even the last couple of weeks, and to shrink my view of what God did to something really small. But we don't get it. We don't really get what God did for us. Can you really grasp how much God loves justice? He loves justice so much that in order to satisfy his justice, he killed his own son. And his son willingly laid down his life for that purpose. That's how much he cared about justice. I don't get that. He cared so much about saying, I love you to lost sinners, that when he wrote, I love you, he didn't write it with paper and pen. He wrote it in the blood of his son. And his son willingly let himself be crucified and his blood poured out just to say that. I don't get that. I can't grasp how a father would love sinners enough to do that, or Jesus would love me or any of you enough to do that. I don't get it. Not really, not fully, a little bit, but I'll never really fully grasp that. But Peter says, look, it's even bigger than that. If you thought that was crazy, let me tell you something. In verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Not only did Jesus decide to die to save lost sinners before you loved him, not only did Jesus decide to die before you were born, but Jesus decided to die before the world was made. When God made the world, he knew already that he would have to send his son to die to save sinners. Jesus already knew that when he made the world with his father, he was going to have to be the perfect sacrifice. Why would he make a world that he would have to die for? I don't, I don't get that. And yet, he was made manifest, says verse 20. He was revealed in real space, time, and history for us so that we could see God's love, so we could see God's justice, so we could see that 
God actually loved enough to adopt rebels into his family. And he did it so we might believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, he wants to give you hope. He says, look, when I raised Jesus from the dead, that tells you that death doesn't win, that evil doesn't win. I win, and I'm good. And I offer resurrection life to anyone who trusts in Jesus and is born again into my family. That's the hope that I am offering you. And when the resurrection happened, it's him telling us, hey, by the way, Jesus' sacrifice, I accepted it. I raised him saying he's innocent and that his sacrifice pays the price for any who trust in him. So you can trust in me. You can believe in me. You can believe that I actually am a God that not only cares about justice, but shows incredible love to people who don't deserve it. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection says. Friends, the only, the only right response to this has got to be worship. It's what you see in Revelation chapter 5 when God's people are gathered around the throne at the end of the story and they sing this. They sing, Worthy are you, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's the response. That's the the vision we need of Jesus in our brains and in our hearts day by day if we want to live for him. We need to see him as so beautiful and loving, and we need to realize that we can't even grasp how much it costs for him to save sinners. To stand there and just say, "But, but why, God? Why would you ever do that? I don't get it. I'm so grateful. It's the only response I can have. And it's because I don't get it that my gratitude is so much greater. It's knowing that that's who God is and knowing that that's what he did to save sinners that fuels a life that wants to please him and obey him. Because who else would you rather live for than the, the kind of God that would lay down his life for you? So who are you? What's your identity? Are you someone like verse 21, who your identity, because of what Jesus has done now, is that you are a believer in God. Your faith and your hope are in him. That you said, look, if this is who God is, my only response is I'm going to hope in him for salvation because I don't have any other hope. That my only response is I'm going to trust him to save me and trust him to keep leading me. That's who I am. I'm someone bought by Jesus. And that's going to overflow in my life. I'm a child of the Father who loves me. So I just want to love him back. A small, very small response to his love for me. Is that who you are? Or maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I see patterns in my life that aren't in keeping with honoring God. I'm not loving him as much as I'd like. Well, all of us are in process, friends. But is this passage helping us see that maybe one of the reasons why our patterns of behavior are sometimes off is not because we just need to try harder, but because we've forgotten who we are. And we've forgotten who God is. 
and what he's done to make us his. Because if you think about the logic of the passage, we could, we could flip it around backwards. If you're not conducting a life in fear of him, it's because you've forgotten that you were ransomed. Because you forgot he's a loving and just father. That's your problem. Your problem is you've forgotten. So let me kind of try to put a little flesh and bones on this, a practical thing, just in my own life. I've been noticing a pattern for the last couple of months of frustration and anger towards my kids when I'm trying to get a lot done and they're interrupting me. And that's wrong. It's sin. It grieves God. So I've been praying and asking God to help me with that. And I feel like a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago God really helped break through because as I was praying about it and thinking about it, I just felt like God was like, okay, Michael, you've been talking a lot about this identity stuff. So who do you think you are? when you're getting angry with your kids. I thought, well, I think that I'm someone that only has value if I get stuff done. That's why it's so frustrating to me when they interrupt me in getting stuff done. Well, who do I think God is in that moment? I think God is someone that will only love me if I do enough, if I'm valuable enough. If I just get enough things scratched off my to-do list, then maybe God will love me. That's completely wrong. It's not who God is at all. I know that God is actually a God who loves me just because of Jesus. And I know it because he demonstrated his love in sending Jesus to adopt me when I was a sinner. I'd forgotten it. So I need to remember. And when I remembered, I realized, well, who I am is loved by God. Whether I get my to-do list done or not, whether I get angry with my kids or not, God loves me as his child. You know what that's done in my heart the last couple of weeks? Just increase my gratitude. It's been overflowing into joy with my kids. And I've been realizing, oh yeah, my parenting issue wasn't a parenting issue. It was a gospel issue. I'd forgotten who God was and what he did for me. Forgotten who I was because of that. And it overflowed into these problems. So what about you? Are there areas of conduct in your life that are off? Maybe you need to ask, who do I think I am when I'm doing this? Who do I think God is when I'm acting this way? And how can I replace that with who God really is in my mind? And ask him to help me see him as he really is. See him in Jesus so I can remember that I'm his and live out of that. Maybe others of you this morning though would say, well, I just recognize I'm not a believer in God. Well, the application for you this morning is the same. You have an opportunity this morning after hearing who God is and what he's done for sinners to say, I want to be a child. I want to trust in him. I want to hope in him. And I've got such good news for you. Christianity is not just about a bunch of rules to earn God's love. It's the love story of God saving lost children and bringing them home and loving them and allowing that love to change and shape their life. And there's a beautiful, really, example of this gospel picture in literature. In the story Les Mis by Victor Hugo, there's a character named Jean Valjean. Maybe some of you know the story, maybe some of you don't. But Jean Valjean is a convict in 1700s France, if I remember right. And he comes to this town, and he's got a letter saying he's a convict, and no one will take him in for the night, of course, except for one man, a bishop, who's known for his generosity to the poor. And he invites him into his home and feeds him and lets him stay the night. And the bishop really has nothing of value in his house. He's sold it all, except for couple of silver candlesticks and some silverware made of real silver. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and he steals the, sil- steals the silverware. And as he's lo- leaving, he encounters the bishop. 
and he knocks him unconscious and flees. The next morning, the bishop is working out in his garden, and the soldiers, three soldiers come with Jean Valjean, handcuffed. And, and the bishop says, oh, thank goodness you found him. Didn't he tell you? He was my guest last night. The soldiers say, well, of course he told us. And then we searched his backpack and found the silverware that he stole from you. But he says you gave it to him. And the bishop says, of course I gave it to him. Really? So they release him. And then the bishop says, in fact, actually, Jean Valjean, I'm so glad they brought you back because you forgot to take the candlesticks. So as the soldiers leave, he leaves, he grabs the candlesticks that are worth hundreds and hundreds of francs, which is a lot of money back then, and puts them in Jean Valjean's backpack. And he gets right up in his face and says, now don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised me to become a new man. Promise, says Jean Valjean? What? Why are you doing this? And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. You know what? His life was completely transformed by undeserved love and grace. He goes on to become a man who passes on that love and grace to others who also don't deserve it. Now, Jean Valjean's life could be changed so much by a pair of silver candlesticks. How much more should our lives be transformed when God, speaking through Peter to us this morning, says, now don't forget, don't ever forget You no longer belong to the futile way of living. You no longer belong to evil. I've bought your soul with the blood of my son. Now go and live a life that honors me and loves others. Let's pray. Father, in your word, the Apostle Paul says that We need spiritual power from your Holy Spirit to be able to grasp the ungraspableness of your love for us. Its height and its width and its depth and its length that's just completely beyond us. And yet I pray that this morning for every person here, they would have grasped your love just a little bit more. That their eyes would have been opened to a bigger God and a greater love, and a greater salvation than what they walked in here this morning believing. And that all of us would walk out of this place seeking to live a life that honors you because we know who we are. We know what it costs you to make us yours. May we live lives that honor you and love others for your glory, the glory of the lamb that was slain to ransom sinners from every tribe tongue, nation, and people. Amen.